0: Section number 23 of Emile. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Naomi Brewster, Melbourne, Australia. Emile by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Translated by Barbara Foxley. Book number four, part four. To guide him in this inquiry, after we have shown him men, by means of the accidents common to the species, we must now show him them by means of their differences. This is the time for estimating inequality, natural and civil, and for the scheme of the whole social order. Society must be studied in the individual and the individual in society. Those who desire to treat politics and morals apart from one another will never understand either. By confining ourselves at first to the primitive relations, we see how men should be influenced by them and what passions should spring from them. We see that it is in proportion to the development of these passions that a man's relations with others expand or contract. It is not so much strength of arm as moderation of spirit, which makes men free and independent. The man whose wants are few is dependent on but few people. But those who constantly confound our vain desires with our bodily needs, those who have made these needs the basis of human society, are continually mistaking effects for causes, and they have only confused themselves by their own reasoning since it is impossible in the state of nature that the difference between man and man should be great enough to make one dependent on another there is in fact in this state of nature an actual and indestructible equality in the civil state there is a vain and chimerical equality of right the means intended for its maintenance themselves serve to destroy it and the power of the community added to the power of the strongest for the oppression of the weak, disturbs the sort of equilibrium which nature has established between them. Footnote The universal spirit of the laws of every country is always to take the part of the strong against the weak, and the part of him who has against him who has not. This defect is inevitable, and there is no exception to it. End of footnote from this first contradiction spring all other contradictions between the real and the apparent, which are to be found in the civil order. The many will always be sacrificed to the few, the commonweal to private interest. Those specious words, justice and subordination, will always serve as the tools of violence and the weapons of injustice. Hence it follows that the higher classes which claim to be useful to the rest are really only seeking their own welfare at the expense of others. From this we may judge how much consideration is due to them according to right and justice. It remains to be seen if the rank to which they have attained is more favourable to their own happiness to know what opinion each one of us should form with regards to his own lot. This is a study with which we are now concerned, but to do it thoroughly, we must begin with a knowledge of the human heart. If it were only a question of showing young people man in his mask, there would be no need to point him out, and he would always be before their eyes. But since the mask is not the man and since they must not be led away by its specious appearance when you paint men for your scholar paint them as they are not that he may hate them but that he may pity them and have no wish to be like them in my opinion that is the most reasonable view a man can hold with regard to his fellow men with this object in view we must take the opposite way from that hitherto followed and instruct the youth rather through the experience of others than through his own if men deceive him he will hate them but if while they treat him with respect he sees them deceiving each other he will pity them the spectacle of the world said pythagoras is like the olympic games some are buying and selling and think only of their gains Others take an active part and strive for glory. Others, and these not the worst, are content to be lookers-on. I would have you so choose the company of a youth that he should think well of those among whom he lives. And I would have you so teach him to know the world that he should think ill of all that takes place in it. Let him know that man is by nature good. Let him feel it let him judge his neighbour by himself but let him see how men are depraved and perverted by society let him find the source of all their vices in their preconceived opinions let him be disposed to respect the individual but to despise the multitude let him see that all men wear almost the same mask but let him also know that some faces are fairer than the mask that conceals them it must be admitted that this method has its drawbacks and it is not easy to carry it out for if he becomes too engrossed in watching other people if you train him to mark too closely the actions of others you will make him spiteful and satirical quick and decided in his judgments of others he will find a hateful pleasure in seeking bad motives and will fail to see the good even in that which is really good. He will, at least, get used to the sight of vice. He will behold the wicked without horror, just as we get used to seeing the wretched without pity. Soon the perversity of mankind will be not so much a warning as an excuse. He will say, man is made so and he will have no wish to be different from the rest but if you wish to teach him theoretically to make him acquainted not only with the heart of man but also with the application of the external causes which turn our inclination into vices when you thus transport him all at once from the objects of sense to the objects of reason you employ a system of metaphysics which he is not in a position to understand. You fall back into the error, so carefully avoided hitherto, of giving him lessons which are like lessons, of substituting in his mind the experience and the authority of the master for his own experience and the development of his own reason. To remove these two obstacles at once, and to bring the human heart within his reach without risk of spoiling his own, I would show him men from afar, in other times or in other places, so that he may behold the scene but cannot take part in it. This is a time for history. With its help, he will read the hearts of men without any lessons in philosophy. With its help, he will view them as a mere spectator, dispassionate and without prejudice he will view them as their judge not as their accomplice or their accuser to know men you must behold their actions in society we hear them talk they show their words and hide their deeds but in history the veil is drawn aside and they are judged by their deeds their sayings even help us to understand them for comparing what they say and what they do, we see not only what they are, but what they would appear. The more they disguise themselves, the more thoroughly they stand revealed. Unluckily, the study has its dangers, its drawbacks of several kinds. It is difficult to adopt a point of view which will enable one to judge one's fellow creatures fairly it is one of the chief defects of history to paint men's evil deeds rather than their good ones it is revolutions and catastrophes that make history interesting so long as the nation grows and prospers quietly in the tranquillity of a peaceful government history says nothing she only begins to speak of nations when no longer able to be self-sufficing they interfere with their neighbours' business or allow their neighbours to interfere with their own. History only makes them famous when they are on the downward path. All our histories begin where they ought to end. We have very accurate accounts of declining nations. What we lack is the history of those nations which are multiplying. They are so happy and so good that history has nothing to tell us of them and we see indeed in our own times that the most successful governments are least talked of we only hear what is bad the good is scarcely mentioned only the wicked become famous the good are forgotten or laughed to scorn and thus history like philosophy is for ever slandering mankind moreover it is inevitable that the facts described in history should not give an exact picture of what really happened they are transformed in the brain of the historian they are moulded by his interests and coloured by his prejudices who can place the reader precisely in a position to see the event as it really happened ignorance or partiality disguises everything what a different impression may be given merely by expanding or contracting the circumstances of the case, without altering a single historical incident. The same object may be seen from several points of view, and it will hardly seem the same thing. Yet there has been no change except in the eye that beholds it. Do you indeed do honour to truth when what you tell me is a genuine fact, but you make it appear something quite different? A tree, more or less a rock to the right or to the left a cloud of dust raised by the wind how often have these decided the result of a battle without any one knowing it does that prevent history from telling you the cause of a defeat or victory with as much assurance as if she had been on the spot but what are the facts to me while i am ignorant of their causes and what lessons can i draw from an event whose true cause is unknown to me. The historian, indeed, gives me a reason, but he invents it, and criticism itself, of which we hear so much, is only the art of guessing, the art of choosing from among several lies, the lie that is most like truth. Have you ever read Cleopatra or Cassandra or any books of the kind? The author selects some well-known event, he then adapts it to his purpose, adorns it with the details of his own invention, with people who never existed, with imaginary portraits. Thus he piles fiction on fiction to lend a charm to his story. I see little difference between such romances and your histories. Unless it is that the novelist draws more on his own imagination while the historian slavishly copies what another has imagined i will also admit if you please that the novelist has some moral purpose good or bad about which the historian scarcely concerns himself you will tell me that accuracy in history is of less interest than a true picture of men and manners provided the human heart is truly portrayed it matters little that events should be accurately recorded. For after all you say, what does it matter to us what happened 2,000 years ago? You are right if the portraits are indeed truly given according to nature. But if the model is to be found for the most part in the historian's imagination, are you not falling into the very error you intended to avoid and surrendering to the authority of the historian what you would not yield to the authority of the teacher if my pupil is merely to see fancy pictures i would rather draw them myself they will at least be better suited to him the worst historians for a youth are those who give their opinions facts facts and let him decide for himself this is how he will learn to know mankind if he is always directed by the opinion of the author he is only seeing through the eyes of another person and when those eyes are no longer at his disposal he can see nothing i leave modern history on one side not only because it has no character and all our people are alike but because our historians wholly taken up with effect Think of nothing but highly-coloured portraits, which often represent nothing. Footnote. Take, for instance, guarcidini Streda, Soles, Machiavelli, and sometimes even de Thau himself. Verdo is almost the only one who knows how to describe without giving fancy portraits. End of footnote the old historians generally give fewer portraits and bring more intelligence and common sense to their judgments but even among them there is plenty of scope for choice and you must not begin with the wisest but with the simplest i would not put polybius or sallust into the hands of a youth tacitus is the author of the old young men cannot understand him you must learn to see in human actions the simplest features of the heart of man, before you try to sound its depths. You must be able to read facts clearly before you begin to study maxims. Philosophy, in the form of maxims, is only fit for the experienced. Youth should never deal with the general. All its teachings should deal with individual instances. To my mind, Thucydides is a true model of historians. He relates facts without giving his opinion, but he admits no circumstance adapted to make us judge for ourselves. He puts everything that he relates before his reader. Far from interposing between the facts and the readers, he conceals himself. We seem not to read, but to see. Unfortunately, he speaks of nothing but war and in his stories we only see the least instructive part of the world that is to say the battles the virtues and the defects of the retreat of the ten thousand and the commentaries of caesar are almost the same the kindly herodotus without portraits without maxims yet flowing simple full of details calculated to delight and interest in the highest degree would be perhaps the best historian if these very details did not often degenerate into childish folly. Better adapted to spoil the taste of youth than to form it. We need discretion before we can read him. I say nothing of Livy. His turn will come. But he is a statesman, a rhetorician. He is everything which is unsuitable for a youth history in general is lacking because it only takes note of striking and clearly marked facts which may be fixed by names places and dates but the slow evolution of these facts which cannot be definitely noted in this way still remain unknown we often find in some battle lost or won the ostensible cause of a revolution which was inevitable before this battle took place War only makes manifest events already determined by moral causes, which few historians can perceive. The philosophic spirit has turned the thoughts of many of the historians of our times in this direction, but I doubt whether truth has profited by their labours. The rage for systems has got possession of all alike. No one seeks to see things as they are, but only as they agree with his system. Add to all these considerations the fact that history shows us actions rather than men, because she only sees men at certain chosen times in full dress. She only portrays a statesman when he is prepared to be seen. She does not follow him to his home, to his study, among his family and his friends. She only shows him in state. It is his clothes rather than himself that she describes. I would prefer to begin the study of the human heart with reading the lives of individuals. For then the man hides himself in vain. The historian follows him everywhere. He never gives him a moment's grace, nor any corner where he can escape the piercing eye of the spectator and when he thinks he is concealing himself, then it is that the writer shows him up most plainly. Those who write lives, says Montaigne, in so far as they delight more in ideas than events, more in that which comes from within than that which comes from without, these are the writers I prefer. For this reason, Plutarch is in every way the man for me. It is true that the genius of men in groups or nations is very different from the character of the individual man, and that we would have a very imperfect knowledge of the human heart if we did not also examine it in crowds. But it is nonetheless true that to judge of men we must study the individual man, and that he who had a perfect knowledge of the inclinations of each individual might foresee all their combined effects in the body of the nation. We must go back again to the ancients, for the reasons already stated, and also because all the details common and familiar, but true and characteristic, are banished by modern stylists, so that men are as much tricked out by our modern authors in their private life as in public. Propriety no less strict in literature than in life, no longer permits us to say anything in public which we might not do in public, and as we may only show the man dressed up for his part, we never see a man in our books any more than we do on the stage. The lives of kings may be written a hundred times, but to no purpose. We shall never have another Suetonius. The excellence of Plutarch consists in these very details, which we are no longer permitted to describe with an imitable grace. he paints a great man in little things, and he is so happy in the choice of his instances that a word, a smile, a gesture will often suffice to indicate the nature of his hero with a jest hannibal cheers his frightened soldiers and leads them laughing to the battle which would lay italy at its feet Agasilius riding on a stick makes me love the conqueror of the great king caesar passing through a poor village and chatting with his friends unconsciously betrays the traitor who professes that he only wished to be pompey's equal alexander swallows a draught without a word and it is the finest moment in his life. Aristides writes his own name on the shell, and so justifies his title. Philopoemon, his mantle laid aside, chops firewood in the kitchen of his host. This is the true art of portraiture. Our disposition does not show itself in our features, nor our character in our great deeds. It is trifles that show what we really are. What is done in public is either too commonplace or too artificial, and our modern authors are almost too grand to tell us anything else. M. de Turin was undoubtedly one of the greatest men of the last century. They have had the courage to make his life interesting by the little details which make us know and love him. But how many details have they felt obliged to omit which might have made us know and love him better still? I will only quote one which I have on good authority, one which Plutarch would never have omitted, and one which Ramsay would never have inserted had he been acquainted with it. In a hot summer's day, Viscount Turenne, in a little white vest and nightcap, was standing at the window of his antechamber. One of his men came up and, misled by the dress, took him for one of the kitchen lads whom he knew. He crept up behind him and smacked him with no light hand. The man he struck turned round hastily. The valet saw it was his master and trembled at the sight of his face. He fell on his knees in desperation. Sir, I thought it was George well even if it was george exclaimed to wren rubbing his injured part you need not have struck so hard you do not dare to say this you miserable writers remain for ever without humanity and without feeling steal your hard hearts and your vile propriety make yourself contemptible through your high mightiness but as for you dear youth when you read this anecdote when you are touched by all the kindliness displayed even on the impulse of the moment, read also the littleness of this man when it was a question of his name and birth. Remember it was this very Turenne who always professed to yield precedence to his nephew, so that all men might see that this child was the head of a royal house. Look on this picture and on that. Love nature, despise popular prejudice and know the man as he was. There are few people able to realise what an effect such reading, carefully directed, will have upon the unspoilt mind of a youth. Weighed down by books from our earliest childhood, accustomed to read without thinking, what we read strikes us even less, because we already bear in ourselves the passions and prejudices with which history and the lives of men are filled all that they do strikes us only as natural for we ourselves are unnatural and we judge others by ourselves but imagine emil who has been carefully guarded for eighteen years with the sole object of preserving a right judgment and a healthy heart imagine him when the curtain goes up casting his eyes for the first time upon the world stage or rather picture him behind the scenes watching the actors don their costumes and counting the cords and pulleys which deceive with their feigned shows the eyes of the spectators his first surprise will soon give place to feelings of shame and scorn of his fellow-man he will be indignant at the sight of the whole human race deceiving itself and stooping to this childish folly he will grieve to see his brothers tearing each other limb from limb for a mere dream and transforming themselves into wild beasts because they could not be content to be men given the natural disposition of the pupil there is no doubt that if the master exercises any sort of prudence or discretion in his choice of reading however little he may put him in the way of reflecting on the subject matter this exercise will serve as a course of practical philosophy a philosophy better understood and more thoroughly mastered than all the empty speculations with which the brains of lads are muddled in our schools after following the romantic schemes of puras cineas asked him what real good he would gain by the conquest of the world which he can never enjoy without great sufferings this only arouses in us a passing interest as a smart saying, but Emile will think it a very wise thought, one which had already occurred to himself, and one which he would never forget, because there is no hostile prejudice in his mind to prevent it sinking in. When he reads more of the life of this madman, he will find that all his great plans resulted in his death at the hands of a woman. And instead of admiring this pinchbeck heroism, what will he see in the exploits of this great captain and in the schemes of this great statesman but so many steps towards that unlucky tile which was to bring life and schemes alike to a shameful death. All conquerors have not been killed, all usurpers have not failed in their plans. To minds imbued with vulgar prejudices, Many of them will seem happy. But he who looks below the surface and reckons men's happiness by the condition of their hearts will perceive their wretchedness even in the midst of their successes. He will see them panting after advancement and never attaining their prize. He will find them like those inexperienced travellers among the Alps who think that every height they see is the last who reach its summit only to find to their disappointment there are loftier peaks beyond augustus when he had subdued his fellow-citizens and destroyed his rivals reigned forty years over the greatest empire that ever existed but all this vast power could not hinder him from beating his head against the walls and filling his palace with his groans as he cried to varus to restore his slaughtered legions if he had conquered all his foes what good would his empty triumphs have done him when troubles of every kind beset his path when his life was threatened by his dearest friends and when he had to mourn the disgrace or death of all near and dear to him the wretched man desired to rule the world and failed to rule his own household what was the result of this neglect he beheld his nephew his adopted child, his son-in-law, perish in the flower of youth. His grandson reduced to eat the stuffing of his mattress to prolong his wretched existence for a few hours. His daughter and his granddaughter, after they had covered him with infamy, died, the one of hunger and want, on a desert island, the other imprisoned by the hand of a common archer he himself the last survivor of his unhappy house found himself compelled by his own wife to acknowledge a monster as his heir such was the fate of the master of the world so famous for his glory and his good fortune i cannot believe that any one of those who admire his glory and fortune would accept them at the same price i have taken ambition as my example but the play of every human passion offers similar lessons to anyone who will study history to make himself wise and good, at the expense of those who went before. The time is drawing near when the teaching of the life of Anthony will appeal more forcibly to the youth than the life of Augustus. Emile will scarcely know where he is among the many strange sights in his new studies, but he will know beforehand how to avoid the illusion of passions before they arise, and seeing how in all ages they have blinded men's eyes, he will be forewarned of the way in which they may one day blind his own, should he abandon himself to them. Footnote It is always prejudice which stirs up passion in our hearts. He who only sees what really exists, and only values what he knows, rarely becomes angry. The errors of our judgment produce the warmth of our desires. End of footnote. These lessons, I know, are unsuited to him. Perhaps at need, they may prove scanty and ill-timed. But remember, they are not the lessons I wished to draw from this study. To begin with, I had quite another end in view, and indeed, if this purpose is unfulfilled, the teacher will be to blame. Remember that, as soon as selfishness has developed, the self in its relations to others is always with us, and the youth never observes others without coming back to himself and comparing himself with them. From the way young men are taught to study history, i see that they are transformed so to speak into the people they behold that you strive to make a cicero a charian or an alexander of them to discourage them when they are themselves again to make every one regret that he is merely himself there are certain advantages in this plan which i do not deny but so far as Emile is concerned, should it happen at any time when he is making these comparisons, that he wishes to be anyone but himself, were it Socrates or Cato, I have failed entirely. He who begins to regard himself as a stranger will soon forget himself altogether. It is not philosophers who know most about men. They only view them through the preconceived ideas of philosophy. And I know no one so prejudiced as philosophers. A savage would judge us more sanely. The philosopher is aware of his own vices. He is indignant at ours. And he says to himself, We are all bad alike. The savage beholds us unmoved and says, You are mad. He is right. For no one does evil for evil's sake. My pupil is that savage with this difference. Emile has thought more. He has compared ideas, seen our errors at close quarters. He is more on his guard against himself and only judges what he knows. It is our own passions that excite us against the passions of others. It is our self-interest which makes us hate the wicked. If they did us no harm, we should pity rather than hate them. We should readily forgive their vices if we could perceive how their own heart punishes those vices. We are aware of the offence, but if we do not see the punishment, the advantages are plain, the penalty is hidden. The man who thinks he is enjoying the fruits of his vices is no less tormented by them than if they had not been successful the object is different the anxiety is the same in vain he displays his good fortune and hides his heart in spite of himself his conduct betrays him but to discern this our own heart must be utterly unlike his we are led astray by those passions which we share we are disgusted by those that militate against our own interests and with a want of logic due to these very passions, we blame in others what we fain would imitate. Aversion and self-deception are inevitable when we are forced to endure at another's hands what we ourselves would do in his place. What then is required for the proper study of men? A great wish to know men, great impartiality of judgment, a heart sufficiently sensitive to understand every human passion, and calm enough to be free from passion. If there is any time in our lives when this study is likely to be appreciated, it is this time that I have chosen for a meal. Before this time, men would have been strangers to him. Later on, he would have been like them. Convention the effects of which he already perceives has not yet made him its slave the passions whose consequences he realizes have not yet stirred his heart he is a man he takes an interest in his brethren he is a just man and he judges his peers now it is certain that if he judges them rightly he will not want to change places with any one of them for the goal of all their anxious efforts is the result of prejudices which he does not share and that goal seems to him a mere dream for his own part he has all he wants within his reach how should he be dependent on any one when he is self-sufficing and free from prejudice strong arms good health, moderation, few needs, together with the means to satisfy those needs, are his. Footnote. I think I may fairly reckon health and strength among the advantages he has obtained by his education, or rather among the gifts of nature which his education has preserved for him. End of footnote. He has been brought up in complete liberty, and servitude is the greatest ill he understands. He pities these miserable kings, the slaves of all who obey them. He pities these false prophets, fettered by their empty fame. He pities these rich fools, martyrs to their own pomp. He pities these ostentatious voluptuaries, who spend their life in deadly dullness that they may seem to enjoy its pleasures he would pity the very foe who harmed him for he would discern his wretchedness beneath the cloak of spite he would say to himself this man has yielded to his desire to hurt me and this need of his places him at my mercy one step more and our goal is attained selfishness is a dangerous tool though a useful one it often wounds the hand that uses it and it really does good unmixed with evil. When Emile considers his place among men, when he finds himself so fortunately situated, he will be tempted to give credit to his own reason for the work of yours, and to attribute to his own deserts what is really the result of his good fortune. He will say to himself, I am wise, and other men are fools. He will pity and despise them and will congratulate himself all the more heartily. And as he knows he is happier than they, he will think his deserts are greater. This is the fault we have most to fear, for it is the most difficult to eradicate. If he remained in the same state of mind, he would have profited little by all our care. And if I had to choose... I hardly know whether I would not choose the illusions of prejudice than those of pride. Great men are under no illusion with respect to their superiority. They see it and know it, but they are none the less modest. The more they have, the better they know what they lack. They are less vain of their superiority over us than ashamed by the consciousness of their weakness. And among the good things they really possess, they are too wise to pride themselves on a gift which is none of their getting. The good man may be proud of his virtue, for it is his own. But what cause for pride has a man of intellect? What has Racine done that he is not Praden? And Boileau that he is not coton The circumstances with which we are concerned are quite different. Let us keep to the common level. I assumed that my pupil had neither surpassing genius nor a defective understanding. I chose him of an ordinary mind to show what education could do for man. Exceptions defy all rules. If, therefore, as a result of my care, Emile prefers his way of living, seeing, and feeling to that of others, he is right. But if he thinks, because of this, that he is nobler and better born than they, he is wrong, he is deceiving himself, he must be undeceived, or rather let us prevent the mistake, lest it be too late to correct it. Provided a man is not mad, he can be cured of any folly but vanity. There is no cure for this but experience. If indeed there is any cure for it at all, when it first appears, we can at least prevent its further growth. But do not on this account waste your breath on empty arguments to prove to the youth that he is like other men and subject to the same weaknesses. Make him feel it, or he will never know it. This is another instance of an exception to my own rules. I must voluntarily expose my pupil to every accident which may convince him that he is no wiser than we. The adventure with the conjurer will be repeated again and again in different ways. I shall let flatterers take advantage of him. If rash comrades draw him into some perilous adventure, I will let him run the risk. If he falls into the hands of sharpers at the card table, I will abandon him to them as their dupe. Footnote moreover our pupil will be little tempted by the snare he has so many amusements about him he has never been bored in his life and he scarcely knows the use of money as children have been led by these two motives self-interest and vanity rogues and courtesans use the same means to get hold of them later when you see their greediness encouraged by prizes and rewards when you find their public performances at 10 years old, applauded at school or college, you see, too, how at 20 they will be induced to leave their purse in the gambling hell and their health in a worse place. You may safely wager that the sharpest boy in the class will become the greatest gambler and debauchee. Now the means, which have not been employed in childhood, have not the same effect in youth but we must bear in mind my constant plan and take the thing at its worst. First I try to prevent the vice, then I assume its existence in order to correct it. End of footnote. I will let them flatter him, pluck him, and rob him, and when, having sucked him dry, they turn and mock him, I will even thank them to his face for the lessons they have been good enough to give him the only snares from which i will guard him with my utmost care are the wiles of wanton women the only precaution i shall take will be to share all the dangers i let him run and all the insults i let him receive i will bear everything in silence without a murmur or reproach without a word to him and be sure that if this wise conduct is faithfully adhered to what he sees me endure on his account will make more impression on his heart than what he himself suffers. End of section 23, book 4, part 4.